we we do have Catholics that are that work predominantly for certain denominations of Christianity along with other faiths. But all the chaplains are trained to be able to do service all the denominations of their faith and to supposedly help soldiers of other faiths also. Welcome to the Generation Zion podcast with Todd and David. Together, they discuss the war against God in the world today. Welcome to the Generation Zion podcast. I'm David. I'm Todd. And today we are not in the same building today. We're actually on a Zoom call. So we're trying this out for a change and we have a guest with us today. If you'd like to introduce yourself however you'd like. Retired U.S. Army service member Wayne. Yeah, I'm retired army veteran I spent 15 years in the army i currently work for uh, a major firearms manufacturer so if you want to if you want to lead todd this one this one's going to be all you i'm running on like i said earlier today i'm running on thoughts and prayers right now i've been awake for 28 hours now <laughs> yeah it's uh that's <laughs> all right so, Wayne, we're so glad to have you first off. And uh, we're uh, so last time we talked, or I talked with David about his experiences growing up, his experiences growing up around the military, his experiences in the military, his experiences uh, really seeing uh, between, I guess, what you would call civilian life and military life. And uh, so, wanted to get an idea from somebody, another perspective, and uh, who better than David's own father? So, Wayne, I wanted to start by sort of getting an idea of uh, where you grew up, and uh, and you know, really, was anybody in your family military as you were growing up? As I was growing up, I had some cousins in the military, one specifically that I looked up to a lot. Most of my uncles and aunts had served during the Vietnam era. Uh, my dad hadn't because he had um, medical conditions that would precluded him from being able to serve. Uh, I grew up just a couple of houses down from the government projects and um lower middle class to middle middle class family yeah. Yeah, went to church every Sunday you know, went to public schools uh, knew I wanted to join the army since I was heck since I was in elementary school interesting what do you mm. think you mentioned your cousin before do you think it was your cousin that uh, that you looked up to so much was, was there an age gap enough that would start that early or was, yeah was... well not that early um 
I was brought up believing in God and country and having a strong love for God and country. And I mean, that was pretty much drilled into my head, you know, my whole life. I still believe it. Even as screwed up as it sounds, if they called me and said, hey, we need you, I'd be back in a heartbeat. So, as you're growing up, one thing I'm curious about is, is um, so I, I know that you're um, a little bit younger than I am. So what I'm assuming is that you grew up in either the late '80s or the '90s. Is that what you I was born? born in '81. Okay. So as you were growing up, one thing I'm really curious about is what was when you were going to the public schools. Um, how welcome was the military in those schools at that point? Uh, actually, quite. Uh, when I was a kid, I remember on certain... I remember the uh, National Guard coming to even my elementary school when I was a kid a couple of times to show off their stuff. When I was in high school, there were there every year the reserves the national guard every career fair they had people there for the military uh we didn't have an rotc at the school that i went to they do now hmm. but um rotc wasn't as far spread up here in the north as the, back then as it is now hmm. but it was, uh, i'm sorry go ahead yeah it, it was the gulf war era so everybody was pro-military back then yep I, re I yeah i remember you know the uh, all the yellow all the yellow ribbons and the uh yeah well the the first gulf war anyway um yeah that uh that was there that was that would have been my time i i i was i've never been military my grandfather was in world war ii but i've, I've never been military my father would have been uh vietnam uh, era, except that he had some kind of educational deferment uh, at the time, but um, but I just just so you know where I come from is that not being a military guy, I I wasn't I was always uh, very welcoming to the military. I was never the kind of guy I felt like I could go into the military because I would have a hard time taking orders. But especially during that first Gulf War, I had a lot of friends who would, they kept threatening to go to Canada if the draft came out again. Um, I was not one of them. I would have gone, I would have been, if they would have drafted me, I would have gone gladly myself. I just never was. So, uh, but I, uh, it was, you know, where I grew up, I grew up in the Baltimore area. So it was a little bit, a little bit different, a little further south. It's actually in the south. Um, most people don't know, but it's in the south, and so there was a lot of military presence, especially in Baltimore, because you know you go by DC. But, oh, um, yeah. but uh, so what? When did you join up? I know that you were you were eager to join up from a, from a young kid, and so did you join up uh, right at eighteen? I joined up when I was seventeen years old, oh. when I was in a junior in high school on what they called the delayed entry program. I mean, I had a lot of different people trying to push me in different directions to when they found out I was joining the military. Um, my mom, she was a Navy corpsman, so of course she wanted me to go Navy. Hmm. 
Uh, honestly, originally I was thinking about the Marines, but my uncle Fred uh, convinced me not to join the Marines. He was a Marine during Vietnam. He uh, saw a lot of messed up stuff. Hmm. So interesting. He still lives with those scars today. So I can only imagine. But, uh, my dad wanted me to join the Air Force because, well. He wanted me to have a safe, cushy job, and well, me being me, I did exactly what my dad didn't want me to do and join the army, like my cousin Aaron. Uh, that's what I was going to ask. It was I, I was trying to remember if you had mentioned that. So it was it was uh, it was the army that your cousin was in. So that was yeah. That... He was in uh, military intelligence. Oh. So you joined the army at seventeen. Uh, did you, when, how long from when you officially joined up to when you went into basic training? Did you finish high school and then went into basic I training? finished high school. I spent the summer hanging out with my friends and then I chipped off the basic August 11th, 1999. Wow. Wow. So it was, it was, it was a different world back then. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, we certainly could ask you about basic training. I don't know if there are any any particular stories you saw about basic training, but I'm sure that was a, in a sense, a rude awakening. You were, excuse me, prepared for it, right? both by all the military people around you. But um, honestly, yeah. I didn't find basic training all that hard. It was stressful, but I was in really good physical condition, and I was already prepared by my relatives for what was coming. Mm. I mean, that, and marksmanship was no problem. Been shooting since I was three years old. Uh, physical fitness, hand-to-hand, -hand, all that stuff was no problem. Um, the land nav and stuff like that, easy. I was an Eagle Scout and the Boy Scouts. And all my scout masters were Korean War, Korean War era veterans of the Marine Corps, mm. which is one of the reasons why I was thinking about joining the Marines. <laughs> but um, no, basic. When I went through basic, they were it was during an experimental phase in the army. And they were uh, doing experiments with stress level. So my unit was in one of the higher stress levels. Interesting and. I honestly didn't have that much of an issue with it because I was already mentally prepared for it. But the good thing about the higher stress levels, it weeded out the people that were had uh, lower moral values, lower intestinal fortitude, lower um, tolerance for that type of stuff. Hmm. And out of everybody that I went to basic training with, as far as I know, we're all still, well, except for those that cash the uh, ultimate check for their country, are all still uh, up and kicking. Hmm. Um, I have run into some people that were in the lower stress level training, and they didn't fare as well. Really? Really interesting. Now, 
so inter- and you mean by fair as well as an after the service? Uh, or the you people with low, yeah, the 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 people in the lower stress level classes that I've met tend to have more issues with their PTSD. I mean, we all have it, but some people have a harder time dealing it with than others. And they also seem to, from what I understand, have a higher suicide rate. Wow. Wow. Do you think that it's because you're the uh, higher stress level hardens people faster? Hotter fire hardens faster? Yeah. I mean, basic training, what it's designed to do, what it's meant to do is break you down to your core element and rebuild you into a soldier. Yeah. So the fat, uh, <clears throat> sorry, allergies. The faster they uh, break you down, the faster they can get to the rebuilding and the more they can do with you. Interesting. So, that, well, that that's that brings up an interesting point because um, do you feel that those who, and it sounds like you thrived under that. I mean, that's what you, you basically said. You thrived under that higher pressure. Do you feel that it's because you brought a much, let's call it larger core to it so that you didn't have as much to break down or maybe even that much to rebuild? Or do you I feel... Mean- truly they broke you down i feel that i I didn't break down the way a lot of people did because i mean i grew up in a military family i i mean my mom was harder on me than the drill sergeants were so (laughs) (laughs) but it was good for me uh i mean my my family as soon as i knew that i was thinking about doing it in the military, they took it upon themselves to help me prepare for it. And I was prepared more for what they went through than what I went through, which was by far worse. Yeah. I mean, I do feel that going through basic training, going through what I went through made me more of a man and made me a better person and definitely a better soldier. Yeah, that's, well, that's something I did want to like touch on is the huge like difference between basic training then and now that's something i really wanted to like talk about because we're definitely seeing a lower quality soldier these days compared to what it was back then even even uh when i was going through training the drill sergeants were that i uh trained under were really pointing that out especially to us you know even if it was part of like the breaking down thing a lot of the time it seems like they were being genuine like when they had that you know sometimes they'd sit down talk to you like soldier to soldier instead of like trying to talk down to you to build you back up when they were having those serious talks with you sometimes they do that like we're seriously like the army is more focused on like one drill sergeant said the that one of my favorites i forget his name now but he said that the army is more focused on sharp and eo and if you don't know what that is it's uh the sexual harassment and rape pre- prevention and uh it was uh, equal opportunity which is basically just uh disguised affirmative action 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, when I went through basic training, when you were, they, they break it down into phases. I did an OSIS <laughs> training. So my basic and AIT was all rolled together in one unit. We never left that unit. So they break it down into different phases. I understand they have fewer phases now, but red phase was the beginning phase. And if you messed up, they could bump you back to a lower phase with fewer privileges or all the way back to the beginning. My unit got bumped back to red phase several times. And when you're in red phase, they're in your face. They're calling you names. They're pushing around. They're bullying you. They're doing what they need to do to make you a soldier. Once you're into the higher level phases, uh, like white phase, black phase, gold phase, they tend to talk to you more personally, treat you more like a soldier, because you've earned it. Hmm. I mean, one of my favorite moments of AIT was we came back from the field and we were sitting there cleaning our gear. It was the last field problem of training. And we're sitting there cleaning the gear and getting everything ready. And Drill Sergeant Levante, my favorite drill sergeant that I had, actually pulled us all together and just started telling us war stories and started telling us about his experience in the Army. And that meant a lot to most of us. It was a real one-on-one -on -one personal time. I, I can I can imagine that I assume that I well I would infer that you 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 wouldn't really get much if anything personal from him aside from that because if especially if you were back in those earlier phases like the red phase you would need they, he would be too busy screaming in your face rather than telling uh, you he was one of the hardest ball busting drill sergeants hell one of the hardest ball busting NCOs because I met him for for long in my career uh, that I ever knew. But he was also one of, honestly, one of the better people I've ever known. Hmm. You guys, I just want to... Because he was doing it, he wasn't doing it out of spite. He wasn't doing it out of meanness. He was doing it to prepare us for what he knew we would eventually face. I just want to put it out there really quick. That there are, there's like four phases. There's not less. There's actually more now. There's like yellow phase. When you get in, it's basically your processing then there's red yeah. and blue and white. I don't count that one. Yeah. There was red, so there's green. The no, there's actually fewer, David. There was red, green, blue, black, and gold. We had okay. five. Oh, well, you had too many. Not including uh, yellow, which was reception. Oh, um, okay, okay. So there are less, but I feel like uh, that might be that might be an improvement. That that's a lot of that's a lot of phases. It's it's it, there's. There's less, but the changes are a lot more drastic, I guess. Like yeah, once you oh, those phases red... also spanned your whole training because we were OSA. Yeah, so no, it, we, we, it spanned I... all the way from the beginning of a, a basic to the end of AIT. I guess it might be different for OSA because I didn't I didn't do OSA. I went someplace else for my uh, uh, just AIT. for reference. OSA is one station unit training. Okay. Yeah, so you do your basic and your AIT at the same place, basically. And same unit. What I'm what I'm curious about is um, 
from a veteran's point of view. Now, actually, before I ask this, I'm curious also, um, now, once you once you got out of basic training uh, during that Gulf War, did you did you go to where uh, where were you stationed? At least what you were willing to say in the general area. I don't again, I don't want you to. When I got out, the only conflict that was going on was the Bosnia Serbia thing. Hmm. Um, the only thing going on in the Gulf War was Operation Desert Box, which was a Clinton era debacle. It was just airstrikes. But um, uh, when I got out, uh, when I got out of basic and AIT, I went to Fort Lewis with the Fourteenth uh, Engineers Five 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 Engineer Group Health Company. So, uh, and, and Fort Lewis, and where is where? Uh, in Washington, just south of Seattle. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, you were saying you got out there yeah. and you. With the engineer. That, that was honestly one of the best units and greatest units I was in in my whole career. They had a unique mission, and we did a lot of fun stuff. Interesting. But, what what if you don't go to uh, a place where there's uh, anything going on? Um, do what I'm curious about again, a non-military guy. What I'm curious about is is how did your basic training you said it made you a better soldier how how would a how were you soldiering as an engineer uh, and i'm not i'm not questioning it i'm what i'm what i'm getting at is i'm i'm really curious about you know obviously uh, basic training really uh, shaped you and you and it sounded like you really came in a lot of ways pre-shaped uh, but it shaped you and refined you and so in in those ways, when you're 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 like you're not going just so oh, I'm going to basic out of basic training into combat. Um, how is basic training affecting what you're doing when you're in Fort Lewis? How does it basic tra basic training prepares? It, g it gives you the literal basics. It teaches you the bare uh, the bare minimum you need to be a soldier your ait teach, teaches you the bare minimum you need to do your job as uh, in your prospective field um at fort lewis the first thing when i went to that unit the first thing my nco sergeant hansen told me was forget everything that you learned because we're going to teach it to you again interesting <laughs> and was that a good thing and Oh yeah, I because basic training is trade off. So it means that they're by the books. They teach you what's in the books. When you get to your unit, if it's a good unit, they take their new soldiers and they teach you everything in a real world perspective. Yeah, when when you're going through training, they basically they only teach you what's in the books, like an introduction to what you're going to be doing as in that situation that they present to you in in that in that drill you, your unit if they're good will teach you things that they've learned from like their the scene this the seniors there the the people who have a combat patch or two those are the guys who have real combat experience those are the guys that you're going to be learning from 
and those are the guys you should be listening to. Take take what the books say with a grain of salt, basically, because they can only teach you so much compared to what people with real experience can teach you. Everything in the books changes when the lead hits steel. What movie of, of any um, really... Uh, was similar to the experience of the army that was that was had some sort of uh, real uh, similitude if you will of of how it was in the army and you had mentioned full metal jacket and particularly the you had uh, pointed towards the uh, basic training scene so what I'm curious about is what was it about that? Was there anything specific? I mean, I don't know. If it's just general, that's fine. If it's just that general idea of, yes, uh, it was very similar. But if uh, I was curious about why Full Metal Jacket and what is about that that really you felt was captured well on film? Uh, it, it wasn't very similar to what I went through because by the time I came in, they'd gotten rid of a lot of the old school stuff but uh the attitude was there and you see uh the soldiers go from a bunch of separate people to being a conglomeration of people a team so to say yeah and you also have a realistic drill sergeant there so oh yeah well, he was actually Honestly, drill sergeant, wasn't he yeah I knew I know he was actually in the military. I just wasn't sure about the drill sergeant part. Yeah, he actually served as a drill sergeant for a time. Uh, blanking on his name right. right now. That that one, as far as basic training goes, that's the only realistic portrayal that Holly that I've ever seen come out of Hollywood. Guys, hmm. R. But, Lee Emery. Ermi, my bad. Yeah, Ermi, Ermi. That was his name. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one thing I'm curious about too is, have you seen Band of Brothers? And I know it's a different oh, yeah. era. That was that was World War II. Um, I know it's a different style of of outfit. You know, this being an airborne type of thing is is um. And, but that is that you know that is army. So I'm curious about: Do you see any any of the connection? Do you feel that that was um, in, in any way, uh, you know, something that was truthful in its telling? Again, a different era, so you have to sort of account for that. But do you feel that that um, was yeah. that? I, I wouldn't be able to say because that that movie, the training that they go through in that movie is like you said from a different era that and yeah. they from start to beginning it was the same people together in basic training in the military nowadays you start off with your training unit and then once you graduate you all split off the different units throughout the military throughout whatever branch of military you're in so i was lucky enough to end up with a couple of the people from my military from my basic training unit at the same post my first posting so i had a few people that i already knew but other than that i probably only ran into a handful of them throughout my career now 
how is it split after? Like, are you split based on the job types, or how is it split that after that basic training, or at least that, um, that part of basic training? Wherever the army needs more bodies for certain units. Yeah, so based on your uh, so, MOS, which is basically your job that you perform for the army, uh, will determine where you go based on how many slots they have opened for that specific job. Yes. So, so it's a simplistic way of saying it, but yes. So it's not it's not uh, surprising that he would have at least ran into a couple of other engineers uh, that he did go to training with. See, they, so you did... Go ahead. Yeah. When you graduate basic in AIT, when you graduate AIT, you get your orders sending you to a certain post where they need that many of your MOS. And then from there, the personnel command of that post decides what unit you go to based on the needs of, that, of the units that are posted there. So, like, I, me and two of the other people that I went to basic training with ended up going to the same company. And then once you get to the company, you go to whatever platoon and whatnot that they need. Interesting. Um, well, let me ask you this. The MOS, it is what... Uh... What put you in that? Is that something that you? How do you how do you get your MOS? I mean, how how are you assigned to that MOS? With the army, you um, when you're initially recruit being going through the recruiting process, you sit down with your recruiter, and they, at least back when I was in, they show you a bunch of honestly completely BS videos about your MOS about all the different MOSs, and answer all your questions and they make suggestions and whatnot based more or less based on what they need for bodies. Mm. But if you have anybody that you know, if you have any knowledge of it beforehand, you can try to get into an MO, a different MOS that you want. Yeah. Uh, but they'll, they'll make you until you suggestions, go... a lot of suggestions, yeah. but uh, they'll try, they'll try you... to convince you to go where they want you to go. If you tell them you're not going to join, if you don't get a certain job, they'll do everything they can to get that job for you because well, at the end of the day, is... they still need you. And when it, what it comes down to is that recruiters actually have no say over what MOS you go to. At least back when I went in. Uh, there's they certain slots. They can, they can tell you that a slot isn't open and they'll try to get you, uh, whatever you ask for but if they uh they'll, they'll make a lot of suggestions based on what they think the army or what the army needs and what they're told to try to fill in but yeah they will try to get but, you whatever job you really want and if you tell them you're not going to join if you don't get a certain job they'll do their best to try and make sure you'll get that job yeah nowadays back when i uh, back when i went in you the recruiters would get you set on with an with an idea in your head but nothing was set in stone you weren't guaranteed a slot or anything until after you went through maps and then you sat down with the career recruiter at maps and then they'd tell you okay these are the slots we have open and if you say well i really want this job they'll look 
at the further projected slots to see if there's anything that they can get you into. Hmm. Like, luckily, when I when I went in, I was a young, dumb kid. I wanted something that sounded exciting and, you know, fun. I had two different ideas in my head. My recruiter convinced me to go a completely different track. Uh, it sounded fun. That's uh, honestly the three things that I wanted when I joined. I wanted to get away from home and I wanted to do something fun. Mm. And I didn't want to be stuck behind a desk. So. So when was I went to Maps. Yeah, when I went to Maps. I asked when I sat down with the recruiters because I was delayed entry. I was coming in before I was 18. I had plenty of time to play with to look for the job I wanted. So, what were those other? What were the other two? What were the two that you referred to earlier? What were those two jobs that sound the most fun? Well, originally, because of my family, I and my interests when I was in school and stuff, I was looking at being an MP or being counterintelligence. And somehow my recruiter talked me out of those and showed me a bunch of videos of people blowing stuff up and convinced me to be an engineer. Honestly, not the worst job in the world, but... And it was fun. So they, they diverted you with that, and do... When, from what you remember, did they, did they push you towards engineer, or at least uh, try to convince you towards engineer because slots were open for that, or do you, no, did you they feel that it was? They were else? pushing me towards combat arms. Oh. So, something, you know, in the combat MOS area, and I knew for a fact I didn't want to do infantry. Yes, hmm. I had certain family members that would have probably beat me about the head if I'd done that. Oh. There's but, uh, two people that go into inventory. People yeah. who don't have anything better to do or people who want to kill people. Interesting. Uh, actually, there's a third. Poor people. Mm. There's a lot of type of people that go into the inventory, David. Uh, actually, some some of the smarter people that I know went infantry. Oh, absolutely. But I know a infantry, it, a former infantryman that's an engineer now. A, uh, was it a mechanical engineer? Yeah. I mean, it's a job for people that are looking for an outlet or adventure. Yeah, the mechanical engineer I just told you about. He joined to kill people. <laughs> Different era. I joined during peacetime, so there wasn't anybody to kill back then. Mm. So you went, you became an yeah. engineer. And then yeah. when you became an engineer, that's when you went to Fort Lewis? Yes. After I... I... I Signed up for it to be an engineer, did my time in the delayed entry program until my slot was available, until the time my slot was available, and then I went to Port, uh, Port Lewis to do my basic in AIT. Yeah. 
And then at that point, engineer. So, can you give us a, at a high level or whatever level you want what what an engineer does aside from the idea of blowing things up? Uh, Demolition is a part of it, but we're a combat engineers are primarily tasked with mobility and counter mobility operations, landmine warfare, counter landmine warfare. We also do um, support operations for uh, artillery and armor, mostly earth moving. But that's only when they don't have anybody else they can call. That means they put a replacement and... bridge on top of where a destroyed bridge is. Oh, we do. We that's part of the mobility operations. Yeah. Um. Honestly, we don't do too much bridge work. That's there's actually a separate MOS for that called Bridgehead Crew Member. They do the bigger bridges. The uh, honestly, our education on bridges when I went through basic and AIT was on the Bailey Bridge, which is made the span intermediate gaps, and the AVLB, which just meant to span short gaps really quickly. But um, we also do, depending on what units you get into, we do uh, counter counter IED work, which is part of the mobility, and we also do some guerrilla warfare training. Interesting. Which is part of the counter mobility training, which is part of the counter mobility tasking, I should say. But basic training in AIT, you you get. The, uh, just a curse, uh, just cursory training on explosives and landmines and bridges and tactical uh, stuff. Most of what you learn as an engineer, you don't really learn until you get to your first unit. Huh. And that really sets the pace for the rest of your career as an engineer, what your proclivities are in the engineer corps. Interesting. So it's really on the job training at that point. And if you fall into an area that it's that matches what you like, it can be a great thing. But if not, then can you move around within the engineering? Is this, once you're in a slot, are you in a slot? No. Uh, every couple of years, you're going to go to a, every, well, back then it was every two to three years, you'd go to a different po you'd go to a different unit. Um, like after I was done at Fort, after I left Fort Lewis, I went to Korea for my first time and I went to a, I went from a light wheeled amphibious unit at Fort Lewis to a mechanized unit in Korea, driving an AVLB, an armored vehicle launch bridge, pretty much a big ass tank with a bridge on top. Hmm. I honestly hated being mechanized. I loved being a light soldier, you know, boots on the ground, out doing the missions, you know. You you only use the vehicles to get you close, and then everything else is on foot. See, what you're describing here is something I think a lot of non-military people have no clue about, which is that, you know, especially since the the name engineer sounds like more desk job, you know, 
in 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 the civilian world, it would be a desk job for the most part. Um, so that's, see what you're what you're describing is is really is really it's really fascinating to, to hear because it's a, so much more active than you would ever expect from the name of it. But yeah, you went to Korea. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry again. Yeah, the Engineer Corps is massive. It's one of the larger corps in the U.S. Army, and within it you have the combat engineers, which are pretty much infantry with PhDs. And then you have your construction guys, vertical, horizontal, electricians. You have all your different tradesmen for construction, for construction, everything. And then you also have the civilian corps of engineers, which fall under us, which do the, you know, you like if you go down to Louisiana, you'll see dams and levees and dikes that were built by the corps of engineers. That's not the army per se. That's the civilian branch of the Corps of Engineers. So there, hmm. there, it's a huge, huge, massive mechanism. And I, like, my battalion at Fort Lewis was a combat engineer battalion. The battalion, the other battalion in the five 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 engineer group when I was there was a construction engineer battalion. So. Our sister battalion was a completely different animal than we were. Interesting. So you said you went to Korea and at that point. At, at that point, again, you're you're in Korea during a time. How how you know how much impact being in Korea and I I assume that you're probably around Seoul. Um, if not, I was north of Seoul. The first time I was there, I was in a city called Pungdishan, and um, it's north of Seoul. It's actually not too far from the DMZ. Really? Yeah. So if you, and... the easiest way to find it, Google Camp Casey, U.S. Uh, U.S. Army Garrison Casey, and that's like literally in the middle of Pungdishan. So, um, does that indicate that uh, part of what you're there for, being so close to the DMZ, did that have to do with uh, with North Korea? Yes. Okay. Our our whole mission there was, if North Korea invaded, was to be a speed bump to do counter mobility operations and slow them down if they got past. If they got into our sector. Yeah, it's a big if. <laughs> yeah. Which would honestly be an act of God for them, but still. I mean, with the support of China, probably, but we'd noticed that before it even happened. I mean, the likelihood of many of us surviving if they made, uh, if they made it to our area was pretty slim. I mean, I was in the only unit that had to burn its colors, which that refers to burning your unit flag during mm -hmm. the Korean War, because the whole unit was overrun and the few survivors were captured. So not exactly the best lineage to make you feel good about that. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, so I mean, we're back then. We also yeah. didn't have J dams, so we were also within artillery range of North Korea too. So, <laughs> but honestly, none of us really cared. You didn't. You didn't care about the art being in artillery range, or at that point, were you just so young and and, and gung ho? And I, I mean that as a civilian gung ho. If that has some kind of real military meaning, by the way. Um, uh, but if, being so young and enthusiastic or gung ho that uh, that you were just willing to do whatever, or neither. From the moment I joined the engineer, the common engineers. It was told to us multiple times that our life expectancy during an initial surge, during an initial attack, whether it was them attacking us or us attacking them, was eight seconds. Wow. The, uh, you get comfortable with the idea of mortality. Hmm. You get comfortable with the idea that you that if shit hits the fan, you could die. Yeah. You How most true, likely are going to die. How true it is is questionable. Don't really know. But uh, it, it's it's really it. it really does make you comfortable with the idea that you could die and it encourages you to become harder to kill. Uh, the statistics they gave us were actually historical statistics, but they were based off from the Normandy landings during D Day. Right. No. I mean, I think everybody there had a short life expectancy. <laughs> yeah. But you, you become sure. with mortality. You come comfortable with your mortality. You make your peace with your maker. And I mean, back when I joined, your chaplain was always there. Before you rolled out of the motor pool on any mission, they'd say a prayer for you. Before you had any function they would they'd say a prayer i mean in basic training and ait our whenever we had a large training exercise or something the chaplain would show up and hmm. it was encouraged they actually encouraged us to go to whatever go to services for whatever faith we had on sunday and literally even if you I mean, they the people that didn't go were given unpleasant work of scouring the barracks and polishing every little piece of brass and stuff like that to encourage them to go to services. So it back when I came when in the army ran on faith a lot more than it does now. Yeah, it, it definitely sounds like it. That's that's fascinating that they encourage it to that extent, that they really made you do all that kind of scut work that um, if you weren't going to go. That's very, very fascinating. And that was for training. And that was just for the, the training exercise. I mean, obviously for the, the real-life exercise, I mean, any of the real-life missions you had, but that was even for training. Now... In now, one question I have is: Were the trainings, and I understand that the trainings have to have large risk in order to um, 
to train you for real life situations. But what do you feel that all that they the fact that even for training they encourage you to see your chaplains uh, was was that part of not just getting you right for the the training that the risk that it came with that but for that when you're out there that it's important for faith to be part of your life in the real life situations like does that that training for your <laughs> is the chaplain part of the training as well more or less i mean back when i joined the army the army had this thing it, it was fairly new not really not new new but it been around for a few years called leadership and it was meant to it wasn't even spelled leadership really but loyalty duty respect selfless service honor integrity personal courage it was meant to help instill of moral values and the army values into you and part of that was you know your the services that they gave weren't you know brimstone and fire services they weren't the cheerful services they were services with a meaning services with a story and i mean the chaplains were soldiers too so they were I mean, they were always there, and they were always helping us keep our moral compasses aligned. Yeah, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've only, at least in my experience, I've only ever uh, met a Christian chapel. I have I have yet to see any uh, one else. So they're so usually the uh, when they do a service, it's usually Christian. They try to accommodate for everyone else, obviously, but the message we is usually Christian. We have chaplains in the army for most of the major faiths. Yeah, but in, in my experience, but the predominant one would be Christian, yes. Because most now, most most people join chap become a chaplain because they're Christian. Mm-hmm. Now, when you say Christian, do mean? Um... So the, the idea of as opposed to Jewish or Muslim or whatever, or do you mean like, uh, is there a Protestant Catholic split there, or does it tend to be more Catholic? Oh, or more so just, just as an encompassing idea of Christianity, like Protestants, yeah. uh, even Angelical or whatever, uh, Orthodox, Catholics, as a group. The ones that worship Jesus. I mean, <laughs> we... We do have Catholics that are that work predominantly for certain denominations of Christianity, along with other faiths. But all the chaplains are trained to be able to service all the denominations of their faith and to supposedly help soldiers of other faiths also. And what's interesting is they I don't know what gear they get issued but they do get issued gear like for example they do get like a uh ammunition bag it's just a big bag that holds a ton of magazines <laughs> i thought that oh, was yeah, interesting they go, into a, they go wherever we go but they don't carry a weapon yeah that's what the now, is, for. but is there a reason they don't carry a weapon 
Well, the whole idea of they are the chaplain. They're they're told they a lot of them wouldn't join if they were told uh, they have to be able to kill. At least that's my personal really? belief. That's my personal belief. Because a lot of the, you know, a lot of Christians don't want to kill. The chaplains are there to look after our souls. The medics are there to look after our bodies, and we're there to handle everything else. So, do the medics carry? Yes. Do they have weapons? Yes. Yes. Uh, depending on what unit they are, they could be issued an M4 or an M9 or both. Yeah, uh, it um, also depends on uh, the uh, is it the adversary, I guess. But yeah, medics can't fire unless fired upon. They can only fight in defense of themselves and their patients. Yeah, so uh, following the rules of the Geneva Conventions, uh, yes, which I, I don't know if will actually be adhered to in our next war. I can't uh, speak they for were... the future, but I can speak. For I can the tell you there were past. times when certain parts of the conventions were, I wouldn't say ignored but severely bent i don't think we've ever in the past i don't think we've actually ever been in a war where with a country that's actually uh followed did you know had to follow geneva conventions like we've been fighting terrorists and insurgents not since for the world past war 20 years if not longer last time we fought a country that was a signatory of the geneva conventions was world war ii yeah, and see how that went. There's a lot more uh, accountability. At least World War Two in Europe. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot more accountability for soldiers now. I don't know how effective that'll be in our next but, uh, I mean, war, but I've seen times where you're in a vehicle, the shit hits the fan, the gunner goes down. And the only other person in the vehicle with you, besides the driver and your TC, is the medic. And he jumps up on the gun and does what he has to. Yeah, you gotta do what you can to preserve yourself and your unit. Yeah. So. Well, makes sense. I'd, I'd put medics in the group of passive-aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Uh, now... You know, the accountability that you were talking about earlier, um, David, is that, um, well, what, you know, is it accountability? Because I know that when you're not facing an enemy who's at least saying they're going to follow the Geneva Convention, then, you know, you're having to, you know, all the insurgency, all those type of um, situations, and even... Even, you know, I, I'm assuming that China, if if we're in a war with them, they're not going to really give a crap about um, Geneva Convention, even I if mean, they... I mean, I hope they would, because China. if they ignore it, then we can ignore it, and we have more weapons. But we won't. But we won't, because, because what separates we have, us uh... from them is the fact that we fight fair. Yeah, but... We follow the rules. Ideally... Most of the time, I, in an ideal world, they don't. But I don't think, I don't, I can't speak for them really. I, I personally don't think that they will to a T. 
I know that we'll try our best because we have a lot of accountability for uh, soldiers and their actions these days, especially after uh, the events of World War II. Uh, even even against insurgents, uh, you're not supposed to uh, do certain things, obviously. That's why, uh, and this is another topic, but uh, that's why the government went around it and hired a lot of mercenary groups throughout mm. our wars in the Middle East because they don't they have different rules of engagement they have different uh doctrine that they follow so they can get away with certain things they're also expendable hmm. yeah expendable except a thousand times more expensive actually if you look at the cost of training a soldier and upkeep of his equipment and everything else they're cheaper not really. When you're accounting for all the equipment they have, they they usually get hired. Their stuff. equipment's theirs, not ours. And we're paying for their equipment because they're using the money we pay them to buy their stuff. Yeah, but their scenarios still... are a hundred percent more expensive. But the government pays them so they can get around things, so they can accomplish missions without compromising soldiers. Well, I know in the corporate world, we use contractors and there's um, oftentimes they will hire like uh, the company I work for hires a lot of contractors and those contractors salary wise are paid much more than uh, well, at least the company they their workforce paid much more for each one. But ultimately, it is it is thought to be less expensive altogether because of all the other costs that are avoided in doing so. And, and is when is that what you're saying? Is that kind of along the lines of of what you're saying? Uh, is that that kind of thing that where it's, it. it, it's yeah. also a lot cheaper to replace a mercenary than it is to replace a trained soldier. Yeah, because they're already there. The their company pays for uh, their training and whatever they get their equipment, but their equipment and all the money that's used to train them still comes from the government hmm. and whoever else pays them for their services. Do you, do you for your own personal opinions, uh, either one or both of you, do you think that this kind of contractor war is a good thing or do you think it is ultimately a negative thing? Uh, well, I think it it's a, on the scenario. I think it's a negative thing overall because more people are dying, but uh it depends on the scenario. If it was a force on force war, like, you know, one country against another, I wouldn't want them there. Cuz they're a liability. If it's something like we had in the Middle East, that was the only way to do business. Because the uh, insurgents, the terrorists, they didn't follow the rules. Yeah, insurgents don't have rules. <laughs> they didn't care. They did whatever they could. Women, children, innocent bystanders, they didn't care. Because in their belief, if a devout Muslim dies... He's going to heaven to meet Allah. No big deal for them. 
if somebody that isn't a devout Muslim dies, they're getting what they deserve. Yeah, they. So it's it, a win-win it's, situation at that point for them. Yeah, you're facing a hard enemy when they don't fear death. Yeah. So we needed the civilian contractors to go in and do the dirty work that us as soldiers couldn't and wouldn't do. Yeah, but now at, at the end of the day, uh, it depends on how you look at it. Because on one hand, having those extra hands to help could prevent more deaths and uh, casualties overall. But on the other hand, they could die and add to the casualties. So Now, it's, it's, have uh, I ever really liked working with civilians? No. Not in the least. I don't go, go as far as to call them civilians. I mean, a lot of them are ex-military. They just don't have anywhere else to go. So they join a contractor. I was using that in a generic term, David. So what what is about uh, what is about civilians that uh, make it difficult? They do what they want to do. The contractors, they they literally they go in, they do what they want to do, and there's no accountability. There's very little accountability, if any, with them. So they go in, they do their mission, but they screw everything up that we've been working for the last six months to do. Because we're not only there to fight the enemy, we're also there to get the civilian to help the civilian population and to get them on our side mm-hmm. so that's the only way to win an asymmetrical war but when they go in and they do their job and with very little oversight or accountability and they piss off the civilian population it's the soldiers that bear the brunt of it so they just make a they make a mess of it uh, from your perspective because they go. Yeah. But do you feel that that what they're doing do they do it well or do it or do they tend to be? Is it tend to be? Um, you know, they do it poorly. It's just that they they've been hired to do it. Well, they is wouldn't it, keep so, hiring them if they didn't do the job. They they do their job well, but sometimes a little too well. Yeah. Uh, well, the reason I even asked that is because um, I don't know if I would agree, and now, not from a military perspective, but I know that, um, well, again, in the corporate world, and you can tell me how this jives with the military world, is that we hire contractors because we just need people in there, and we have, I mean, there are some kinds of parallels here, and that... Well, I work in an IT area, and so we hire a lot of contractors. It's very, in a sense, it's delicate work. It's it's specialized work. It's skilled work. Um, but we'll hire people sometimes, and it doesn't truly matter how well they like. They're it's it's about fifty fifty whether the contractor group works well, like whether they can truly do a job. It's not that they can't do their job. It's just they don't do the job that we need them to do many times. You know, they individually are smart. They know how to code. 
but my company has a specific way of doing things and too many times we've just we've gotten crap out of it and so when we tell our our executives that no just don't hire people just to hire people hire the right people you know that becomes a problem but they keep hiring just whomever they hire the same ones but part of it's because they have contracts part of it because you know some executive is like hey i like these people i want to hire them so you know is that happening in the military where i mean to me it, it's it's something that these kind of corporations work in in ways where you we, you know david you and i were talking about bureaucracy the bureaucracy and the inefficiencies that go with it it ends up being a corporations end up being a bureaucracy and so how much is military bureaucracy just going to keep doing the same thing even though it doesn't necessarily make sense from the individual perspective they'll probably keep doing it um with the it all depends on the on the contractors themselves because a lot of the contractors are honestly good people a lot of them are former special operations and have a lot of training but there's also some that are not from that area so if you get a bunch of veterans come in that are contractors they do a better job but if you get a bunch of the ones that are pretty much never served and just work as a have just worked as a contractor they're the ones that tend to screw everything up Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it, it makes sense because you have that previous experience with the, at least with the military, you would have some more context. Whereas if you're just coming out of nowhere and then, you know, you don't have, you don't have that context, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, the, um, back when I first joined the military, you, I mean, there were, con there were mercenary groups, but you'd never hear about them or besides in like really crappy movies or soldier of fortune magazine. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, they were off fighting their own little private wars somewhere and we, it never really bothered us. It wasn't until Iraq and Afghanistan that they ever really became a military asset, so to say. Although, I mean, I can understand the need for the use. One, we were massively undermanned. We still are. And it's not even the recruiting issues. The U.S. Army is designed to be able to fight three and a half wars. Currently, with the size of the U.S. Army that it's at now, between downsizing when there's liberals in charge of the government and our recruiting issues we can barely fight one more yeah i think as long as the army keeps pushing towards becoming more and more bureaucratic we're always going to have the issue of recruiting because a lot of people don't want to join just to do paperwork and that seems to be what's happening like people have this idea of the army or the military in general and they s see all these new ads and about like the army like that uh newer one that came out like was a couple years ago now uh with the with the lesbians 
and oh, yeah. has nothing to do with the military. Uh, yeah. And well, it, the, the whole idea of the military is to strip away like your individuality and make you equal to everyone else around you, but it kind of defeats the purpose with an ad like that. And that, that yeah, really did the, impact the recruitment, but... Wokeness and, and, is definitely not helping. Yeah, and Neither it's is becoming more public. Of... So people who would have otherwise joined are being exposed to this in the media, and, and they're seeing what it's becoming, and they're like, you know what? No, thank you. I think I'll just, you know, I'll just buy an AR or something, and I'll read online, or I'll just join a local militia group or something like that. Which in of itself is there's nothing wrong with that, but instead of doing what they wanted to, and you know defending the country, which still joining a militia group could do that, but uh, they're they're throwing away an opportunity, and the government's helping them throw away that opportunity because they're just not making it an organization that people want to join. And the problem is, is out of touch officers at the top, the top brass, they're so out of touch with reality and they're trying to push all this woke garbage onto the military and onto people. It's just making no one want to join. It's, it's pushing people away. Three things that hurt the army the most in my, in my opinion is this new wokeness that they then trying to push in. The and I mean they uh, that's hurting us honestly because if you're that touchy feely about things the military probably isn't where you should be it's the new kindler gentler army the lowered standards the army isn't concerned about the things they should be concerned about no or it's the also just the civilianization the of the military and i'm not talking about mercenaries back when i joined you hardly ever saw a civilian that wasn't a dependent on post you went into an office there were soldiers there that were running that office you went into uh, the central issu issuing facility, CIF. And there were soldiers, logistical soldiers, issuing out the gear. Now, you go into an office in the military, you might see one soldier, and everybody else in there is a civilian. And they're yeah. getting paid ten times what that soldier's getting paid to do the same job that you had a private doing back when I joined. Yeah, it's ridiculous. You have civilian <laughs> office workers, you have civilian uh, resource workers, you have civilian defac workers, and a defac is basically the military cafeteria. And yeah. you, even in the defacs, there are... where it used to be soldiers. Mm -hmm. And now they're striking I... because they're not getting paid enough, and the army and the military can't pay soldiers either, and this, that, and the other thing. Well, if they took the money that they were paying that those civilians and put it towards pay raises for military personnel and tried to get our pay up to a respectable level. I think a better for, word you know, is acceptable. 
because yeah. that's another big thing that I didn't even mention. Is it would help pay, their recruitment a lot. Is pay. If people look up, if you look up Army Pay 2023 or Air Force, anyway, anything, Military Pay 2023, it's going to be the same exact thing it was years ago. It may, it may be a little bump here and there, but nothing significant. It And you, people look at that and they're like, even with free room and board, I'm expected to live off of this? <laughs> hmm. yeah. It's, I mean... That turns away people. Soldier. That, that turns away people just looking for a paycheck. If you're a single soldier, you're expected to live in the barracks and eat in the DPAC. So you're pretty much living in a dorm that it, you're subject to inspections all the time. So you're you're living the military life. But, and you're eating in a DPAC, which honestly, Army Chow, not the best in the world. It depends which base you get put on. The uh, the only place I've ever had decent food on an army run base was when I was in Iraq. Hmm. Yeah, so pay is a huge issue because you use yeah. you they charge you to eat at the defac, which why? Because you're already you're joined. You expect you get free food. They still tax you, which, again, why? You're already making government money, so what's the point of taxing you again? You're making taxpayer dollars. Why tax tax dollars? It makes no sense. And with what little you have left, you probably, most people, spend it on alcohol or just another or a car, and they're already making car payments. So what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? You what are you are you expected to save? No. So let's say you're you go in for four years, you make specialist, you retire off your four years, maybe you saved everything you have, you don't have a car, even with that, what little money you have left you probably could have saved in a year with a regular job. Because, I mean, there's uh, also other expenses like you you get you do get a uniform allowance, which is spent on alcohol has hardly ever gone up. I mean, literally, I was getting almost the same uniform allowance. I think it went up like ten bucks. Yeah, I I don't know. I went in and the time I got out. I don't know what it looks like now. It was like the last time I was on a base, uh, I paid like forty bucks for a pair of pants. Yeah. Back when I joined, the uniform allowance was enough to buy one uniform. And you only get this yearly. It was enough to buy one uniform. Hmm. Now, the uniform allowance isn't even enough to buy a whole uniform. And you usually go through a couple sets of uniforms a year, easy. Unless you're in a pencil push, unless you're in a rear echelon pencil pushing job if you're actually if you're a combat arms or combat support soldier which is 90 percent of the army you're 
guaranteed to mess up at least two or three uniforms a year to the point where they're no longer serviceable. Yeah, and I don't even get a uniform allowance as a reservist. Well, I... that's the nice thing about the reserves. The reserves actually have a better issue system for the uniforms. You can turn in your uniforms when they get messed up and get new ones. Yeah, that's Active what I was going to say. I don't get one. I can just turn in my non-serviceable uniforms and get new ones, which is nice, and I don't know why that's not a thing in active duty. Active duty, we have to buy them ourselves. That doesn't The only sense. ones you get for free is your initial issue. And every time they change the uniforms, you don't get a new issue of uniforms. You have to go out and buy the new uniforms yourself. How often like do they, they change, change the uniforms? And they have changed them three times since I've joined. The just the ba just the uh, basic combat uniform that we went from the EDUs, you know, the traditional camo, woodland camo that everybody knows, to mm -hmm. the ACUs that we had that some officer in some office thought looked good because they wanted to copy the Marcom, the Marines camouflage pattern, but the Marines said they couldn't have it, so they came up with their own digital camo that did not blend in with anything. I never got that. Worst camouflage, like... worst camouflage pattern ever designed. And it was literally the program was run by a bunch of officers that had no combat experience. Yeah, it never made sense why the Marines didn't just let us have it. We're on the same exact side. What's the, what's the deal? <laughs> it's, a, it's a rivalry thing between us and them. Yeah, it makes no uh, sense. The same, uh... reason why the, same reason why the XM5 program got canceled. When they were the first time they tried to replace the M4, we developed the XM5. The army was all set to buy it. Luckily, they didn't. It was also a piece of poop. So, it was an okay weapon for the time. And a lot of the technology went towards creating the new weapons that we have now. But the whole reason the army didn't buy it is because the Marine Corps complained that. They weren't in on the process and on the development process, and the DOD told the Army to scrap it. Yeah, which I, again, I don't get because if, if the military was a person, like a body, the Marines would be the shoelaces. Because they're literally a, they're, they're part of the Navy, they're just a smaller part. I don't understand why people think of them as this huge organization. They're they're part of the Navy. They're a very good and very necessary organization, though. Right. Sure. Well, that's as true as that is. Still, I I don't think that they have. I have, have a lot this... of friends that are bullet sponges. Yes, but they. I feel like they get more of a uh, a, a bigger soapbox than they should. Are you saying that the Navy are the shoes of 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 that same? Right. Uh, Let's not get image? too deep into it. All right, we've already established <laughs> that the Marines are the shoelaces. Right. Maybe, maybe even oh. the soles of the boots. Yeah. So here's know, here's we, what... we had different names for them back then. We used to refer well. to the Marines as uh, bullet sponges or walking sandbags. <laughs> Um, you, well, you said that, you know, Wayne, that you, you know, now, now there's wokeness, you know, wokeness is everywhere. 
when you were when you joined up, you know, wokeness was not even a thing. You know, it was not even a word that meant anything other than that your eyes had already um, come open in the morning. Uh, so my question is this, is that, you know, back then, you know, and, and, and I, I, you know, David and I had talked about this before, back, back when I was growing up and you and I have kind of crossed, crossed uh, some of our timelines is that the Democrats and Republicans were just, uh, they were on the opposite sides of the fence, but they were reasonable people either side. You know, for me, the Democrats uh, were always reasonable people for the most part, even the, the people who call themselves Democrats tend by and large are reasonable people. Nowadays, everything is woke, and woke is woke by almost its very definition means that there's division. So my question is is this, is that back then, how much did politics even get discussed in any kind of personal level, and how much was it ever discussed from a top-down approach? Never from a top-down approach. Never. Because that is actually against army regulations. Not anymore, apparently. We don't discuss. We weren't allowed. uh, Our command wasn't allowed to discuss anything having to do with politics or elections with us, besides reminding us to send in our absentee ballots and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's it's still a thing. We don't talk about like elections or anything, but it's absolutely like in the military. Otherwise. A lot of these oh, things yeah. wouldn't exist. It's just disguised as other things. But uh, talking between ourselves, always. Soldiers have always been politically aware. Mm-hmm. And mostly because, and we know when, like, when there's a Democratic president, we're going to be hitting rough times. When there's a Republican president, it's going to be the land of milk and honey when it comes to our budgets. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when I joined, it was during the Clinton administration. And there were units that had such little funding, they were running around doing training, yelling bang, 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 because they couldn't afford the blanks for their guns. Really? We were having to make our own training aids a lot of the time because we just couldn't get them. That's just regular stuff on the reserves. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, luckily, my unit that I was in when I first joined wasn't as affected by the Clinton era cutbacks and stuff So because of our particular missions. So we didn't feel the budget crunch as much but we still knew it was there because of everybody else around us now i mean i could say there's always been budget issues the army's never had enough money for what it really needs now that's mostly because of the brass and because of politics but yeah now but yeah, soldiers have always been very aware of politics. Hey, you're know, talking about budgets. You're, you know, it sounds like you know, 
it's hard. It's hard for civilians to know, and I, it may be civilians who, you know, are reading up on all this stuff. Uh, maybe they understand it, but you know, I think that again, liking it to the corporate world, if we have a budget crunch, that means we don't hire more people. You know, we have we have hiring freezes, and and then, but essentially everything else, for the most part. You know, um, again, I work in IT area, so yeah, you may not be able to get all the technology you want, but um, you know, nothing else changes, and we're able to to do our our job. But it sounds like, I mean, with the army, there are more people coming in. Maybe not as much now, or maybe you know, if there are recruitment problems, you're not having that you know just constant flow in. But that's what I think was is in a sense startling. I guess is that you have more people. The budget stays the same or the budget goes down. Now you're doing things like you just described where units are running around saying bang, bang, instead of actually having the equipment they need to do training. That, to me, is 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 mind-blowing because you don't hear that as a civilian, that that's how it affects. It affects the rank-and-file soldier the most. Oh, yeah. Because most of, most of the time you, you think, oh, well, it, you know, some brass is not going to be able to you know build a new uh, i don't know some new bomber or have a build a warship and everybody's like oh see we don't need another bomber we've got plenty of bombers but it's really affects that rank and file the most and that's what was mind-blowing yeah just take a basic trainee uh take actually a, a, a first term soldier like david by the time he gets out uh, by the time he's done with his first couple of years in the military, the army will have spent over a million dollars on him. That's medical care, training, feeding him when he's working, um, his equipment. That's just one soldier. Yeah, and either way, they're going to build that next bomber. They just take money from other people. Another yeah, they just they, take... they work from the bottom. They take money from where they can cut to fund the programs that they think they need. So they'll take money from our training budgets. They'll take money from base improvement projects. Because trust me, base improvement projects are low tier in their mind the soldiers can get along without having a, a gym that isn't infested with black mold we'll just clean up the old one yeah who so, cares if the commissary and the px look like something out of the 1940s or their housing is four center block wall yeah when i went to ait uh, the building was falling apart. From the outside, it was it looked sturdy, it looked normal. But you went inside, uh, a bunch of missing tiles in the ceiling, a leak, maybe uh, they, three on every floor at least. Yeah, here's uh, one washing machines down. David. What's up? Here's one that we can both relate to: the house that we lived in in El Paso. Hmm. It was literally a reject from the 1950s. I mean, the walls were concrete. The floors were 
institutional linoleum tiles. I mean, yeah, this is how messed up Fort Bliss was. We had housing like that, but they spent millions of dollars building a brand new PX and entertainment complex on post. But you probably had to pay your money to take part in. Uh, the movie theater was actually pretty cheap. The The movie theater and the PX were the only things that were... And the movie theater, the PX, and the food court were the only things that were run by the military through APHES, Army Air Force Exchange Service. Everything else, it was space rented to civilian businesses. We barely had... It was... Our house was rated to be for a family of five. There was barely enough room for the four of us. So let me ask. Let me ask you this: uh, How can civilians know about this more? Because you know, when civilians go to vote, and I, I understand that we're not voting on budgets, we're not voting on that, but. How can how can information like this be more commonly aware among civilians? Because it certainly could impact who they vote for to put in to support these type of 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 measures. Because I mean, the, the, again, it's mind blowing to me to hear this stuff. Yeah, find out more. Do your research. Talk to veterans. Talk to people that are actively serving. But I think what it's difficult is knowing who. Are the earmarks? And this is a larger question, honestly. I, I, you know, that may even have been not necessarily an unfair question, but an unfair question to ask and to expect an immediate response for, um, only because I, I think it's it's more it's more difficult to figure it out. How how do we know who are those people who are going to be supporting the military, the rank and file, the 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 people who need it the most, not the not the uh, the military as an institution, but the soldiers who we can, you know, who we really want to support. And it's funny because from a civilian perspective, they always love to parade the soldiers around. You know, the the um, the, the people who are your everyday soldier. They love to parade them around, but then you find out that they are, you know, uh, taking advantage of them essentially, and all the things you said from. From not even giving them a, having to make them pay for a uniform, yeah, giving them some kind of allowance, but never, never increasing it, never even making it sounds like commensurate with the uh, amount the uniform would be, to charging for you know charging for all these different things, um, and then like you said, David, taxing them on top of it. <laughs> They're talking about double taxes. I mean, the the taxes came in, and now you they get paid to you, and you get taxed on that as well. So it goes back in the back in the old politicians' coffers. But I think that's what's difficult is who are the types of people? And this might be for a future episode because this might be something that maybe maybe uh, uh, both of you could even think about and maybe David and I, you and I could talk about. But how, how do we know who to vote for? Because, you know, I, I, 
absolutely agree with Wayne with what you said and that it, you know, do your research and talk to veterans, but it's so difficult to even know what to talk. You know, this came up in this conversation, but I wouldn't have known to ask what, what veteran, what, what your soldier, you know, your average soldier goes through, what they have to deal with and how the budget it gets shortchanged, uh, you know, in relation to them. So I think that's what I want to. Who can we put into power so that they can actually influence the brass, influence the other idiot politicians to, you know, to uh, pass the budgets or to at least hold the brass accountable for the budget that's passed? Well, you can start by uh, voting for someone who can speak in complete sentences. <laughs> I would say if they're if you're looking at currently serving congressmen or senators look at the voting record it's right there public information on the internet easy to find look at their voting record yeah and you should know who what they're voted. voting for too don't just take the media's word for it look up this person and yeah make sure media you research. actually know who you're voting for I mean, Vote if it were up to me, that... we'd just do away with voting. We'd just have a really big fight with a bunch of strong people, and the last one standing would be president. But, hey, <laughs> whatever. The WWE version of politics. I like that. Um, the, here's the thing, is that you've already, you've already pointed out, though, that they're going to get their bombers. They're going to get their warships. They're, gonna, they're going to uh, steal from... Um, you know, to Peter to pay Paul. So when you see a politician who at least who would be voting for um, expanding the budget, the question still remains, though, is that budget going to affect the people it should the most, which is no. your, your, you know, so, you know, that, I think that's what the struggle is. And maybe there's no answer for it, to be honest. Maybe it's there's no answer about... for it because of the bureaucracy. It's not about voting for who's going to increase the budget the most it, that that doesn't really matter when at the same time they're just going to reallocate the funds to make bigger paychecks for the top brass uh it's 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 you want whoever's going to take down the bureaucracy whoever's going to reduce that whoever's going to put people in charge who are in touch with reality people who go outside and talk to their subordinates and know the soldier yeah that and transparency we won't ever have a good answer to that until there's more transparency hmm. I mean, there's a large portion of the military budget that unless you're part of where that money's being allocated to no <laughs> you won't know where the money's going um, there's a lot of things that they won't tell the general population about budgets and stuff because it's quote unquote too sensitive or whatnot. I mean, I can understand the need for secrecy in some aspects, but until we have more information, you it's very hard to make an informed decision. Hmm. Uh, 
true statement. Uh, absolutely true statement. Well, I, you know, I think, David, I think that this has, uh, I, I, I think this is a good uh, stopping place, and I think this is going to be a good springboard for some future future episodes because yes. this has really opened a lot of a lot of stuff that I think we can delve into, and um, so I think this is a great stopping place right now. Yep, we're almost at uh, two hours, so yeah. Uh, do you have any closing remarks? I'm always here if you guys want to talk. Any advice to give to our viewers, listeners, rather? Even though I've said a lot of, pointed out some of the downsides to the military, if I had it to do it again, I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Hmm. All right, there's no better recommendation than that. Serve your country and be proud of it. There's a lot of things you can learn. It makes you a better person. And, I mean, my pay may not have been the best, but I walked out of the Army debt-free. Hmm. All right. I think that's a good note to end on. Thank well, you for listening. Wayne, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope that you will uh, join us again in the future. We can have Absolutely. some more, uh, be the last more great time. discussion. I'm always willing to talk. All right. So I think that sums it up. Thank you for listening. And we will talk to you next time. Or let you listen in next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.